says, Then came he to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewess and believed, but his father was a Greek, which was well reported by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Him would Paul have to go forth with him and took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters. For they knew all that his father was a Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees for to keep that they were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. And so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I ask your blessing upon the message today. Lord, help me to stay true to your word. Lord, I pray that it would strengthen us, that it would draw us closer to you. Please meet the needs that are here. Use your word today to be a help. Lord, I I do pray for those who are present who have never truly been converted. Lord, I pray that even this morning they repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you'd work on their heart. Lord, please bless now. And I I pray for your help, your mercy, and your grace. Lord, I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. And so we have Paul and Silas beginning what we refer to as the second missionary journey. The first one really, again, it hasn't really been all that long since it concluded. They returned back to their sending church, which was the church in Antioch. They reported all that the Lord had did. And then, of course, they had a controversy brewing. Because in that first missionary journey, and especially with the church at Antioch, which was becoming just an incredibly strong church filled with Gentiles, um, this was new. The idea of Gentiles getting saved. And we don't even see the first one saved until Acts chapter 10, where Peter, the Lord had to give Peter a vision and tell Peter, go, you're going to witness uh, um, to this Gentile and his family. And of course, the, him and Cornelius and his family repents and gets saved. And anyhow, word spreads of Gentiles being converted, and it really takes off in this area of Antioch. So much so, if you remember, they sent Barnabas there from Jerusalem to see what was going on. Barnabas was just amazed. It was genuine. It was real. And so he goes and finds a man named Saul, who would become Paul, who was converted in Acts chapter 9. He was the persecutor of the church. He goes and gets him. They become the pastors of the church. And then the Lord calls them out for the first missionary journey. They went into an area called Galatia. That's really focused anyhow. And now they're returning. They're heading back. Paul was ready to get going. Uh, we saw last week how Paul, he, he wanted to return his passion for the gospel. He wanted to help his converts. He wanted to see how they were doing. He wanted to strengthen them further. He wasn't about just to stay at Antioch. And so he wants to head back out on the missionary trail. And we looked at, we focused on how good men can disagree. And how the disagreement came between Paul and Barnabas how both were approaching a man by the name of John Mark from different perspectives. It wasn't that one was right and one was wrong. It's how each man's temperament was and how they viewed John Mark because he went with them on the first missionary journey, but he quit. Barnabas wanted to bring him again. Barnabas was also his uncle, and Paul did not want to bring him again. Paul didn't think he was ready yet for it. Barnabas did. It grows into something it should not have, and that was a sharp contention. And Paul ends up getting a man by the name of Silas, who happened to come after the Acts 15 and, and selling the dispute of, of legalism and, and the necessity to follow the law for salvation that was being taught, which was false. Once that was settled, a man named Silas came from uh, Jerusalem to the church at Antioch. And so Paul gets Silas, and he's going to head out. 
We saw how important it was that he had Silas, Silas being a Roman citizen. That's going to be very important for Paul in this journey. We saw how the Lord knew what he was doing. Two missionary teams heading out. And uh, uh, Paul getting Silas, which was of the Lord. Paul would need him. And so they head out, when we pick it up here, into Galatia in reverse order of the way they went the first time because Barnabas and John Mark went into Cyprus, which was their uh, initial location when they did the first missionary journey. So our text picks up right there where they begin. When I, when I arrived in New Guinea, I realized there was really many things I was going to need if this thing was going to be successful at all. I knew that I would need the right people if this was going to work. And I knew how much I was out of my element all of a sudden, growing up in Cleveland and finding myself literally living in the jungle. And the Lord provided two men he had in place immediately, a man named James Abel um, and a man named Puse. Uh, one day I helped to bring actually both those men here to Alaska. Um, and they were instrumental in helping me because I would need that help. I knew nothing of the culture. I needed a much better perspective of the culture. I was making mistakes from the get-go. Just not understanding the culture yet. So I needed the right people in order to be successful to help me. I needed the right perspective if I was going to be successful. If there was going to be any true production results, I would need those things to take place. What we see taking place with the Apostle Paul in this missionary journey is true as well. How he's going to need the right people, the right perspective, and the right production. And we see all of those things in our text. What we see God doing with Paul is something that not only gives us the history of what was taking place with the early churches and a proper method for missions, but much more than that. How the Lord works in each of our life to help us stay close to him and help us to be effective. And that's, that's how I want you to look at this this morning. In your life, as you serve God, as you go through your everyday life, I assure you, you need all of these. You're going to need the right people with you. Every David needs a Jonathan. Every Aquila needs a Priscilla. Every Peter needs a John. Every Joshua needs a Caleb. Every Mary needs a Martha. We also need the right perspective, especially in this wicked, vile world where people, honestly, at times don't even know how to think, it looks like. I mean, we have, we have issues that pop up and Christians are, well, what is this? What am I seeing? They don't know how to even approach it nowadays. Perspective is off. But we need the right people. We need the right perspective. And we also know we need the right production in our life. The right fruit being produced. To see how we can have an influence on those that God puts around us. Our family, our friends, our co-workers. How we want to see fruit from that. I don't think any of us just wants to spin our wills in our Christian life. What a waste. We want to receive results in our family and the people God puts around us. Again, to be an influence in the place where God puts us. Listen, where you're at is not an accident. So today, as we look at this, we'll see Paul as he begins the second missionary journey and how God works in it. We'll see God putting the right people in place, Paul with the right perspective, and the right production, the right results coming about. So let's dive into this and let's look at the right people. Let's look at verses 1 through 3. 
Then came he to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman which was a Jewish, and believed. But his father was a Greek, which was well reported, speaking of Timothy, by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Him would Paul have to go with him. Let's stop right there. The Lord knows what Paul is going to face in the future. The Lord realized where Paul is going to go on this missionary journey and then his third missionary journey. And by what's amazing about Paul on his third missionary journey, he goes right back into Galatia again, by the way, when he starts that. He's always reinforcing and checking on his works. But the Lord knows what he's going to face six months from now, two years from now, five years from now, even up to the day of his death. And he's going to put somebody in his life now that's actually more than likely is going to be there when Paul is martyred. Paul, of course, has no idea of that. The Lord's already given him Silas, who's going to be an enormous help right now, him being a Roman citizen. But the Lord isn't done yet. Paul, while traveling, because of the two teams splitting, he meets up with Timothy. I mentioned him last week, how we see God's providence and God's sovereignty and the fact that he comes across this man named Timothy. This young man will be a help to Paul in the cause of Christ all of Paul's life until the day he dies. Timothy, I want you to think about this. When Paul picks him up in Paul's mind, what he is basically is is a replacement of John Mark. If John Mark is there, it's very likely Timothy does not travel with him right now. Again, you can see God's hand in all of this. Now, John Mark would go on to be very faithful, as would Timothy. The Lord will put the right people around you when you're truly wanting to seek him, who have the right people in your life. So now we come to this man named Timothy. I want to look for a little bit at his heritage. We know from the Word of God he was likely convert from Paul's first missionary journey. And I mean a, a, a convert actually of the Apostle Paul. Paul refers to him in two locations as a son in the faith. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17. So it's very likely Paul led him personally to the Lord back on his first missionary journey. Timothy would be very young at this point. He is thought to be somewhere between 17 and 24 years old, which most believe on trying to piece everything together with what happened that he was between 18 and 20, the most likely age when this takes place in chapter 16. Not only was he converted, but we also know from Scripture, so was his mother and his grandmother. Look over in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 5, when he's talking to Timothy in this letter, years later, he says, When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and am persuaded that in thee also. So he had his mother and his grandmother who had this true, genuine, sincere faith. 
He followed that faith. In other words, he was genuine. He was really, he wasn't fake. We can see the important role. I'm not going to go there this morning, but that parents and grandparents, the profound effect that you can have on your children for the cause of Christ, especially when they see a faith that is genuine and real. I was talking this week with somebody about what did not use quite those words, genuine faith, but it's along the same lines. That genuine faith before God. So what Timothy saw in his mom and Eunice, what he saw, was a mother who took it serious, was genuine and true. Genuine faith is, is not based simply because we hold the King James Bible or because you dress right and look right. That doesn't make you spiritual. It makes you obedient, but not spiritual. There's a difference. Now, we have a move today just to throw those things out in the name of spirituality. No. The the problem is, if you are looking at those things to be spiritual, you viewed them wrong. They were not there to make you spiritual. They were there to protect you. They were there as as a measure of obedience. They weren't there to make you spiritual. If you viewed it that way, you looked at it wrong. And maybe you came to that conclusion realizing this is what's making me spiritual, or or, or you realize that doesn't make me spiritual, and then you decide to remove it. No, you have to change your perspective on it. It wasn't what you were doing was wrong. It's how you viewed it was wrong. It was never there to make you spiritual. Life is about that relationship with God and your love for Him. And listen to me, what Timothy saw in his mother and his grandmother was something that was real. Something that was genuine. An unfeigned faith. His father was a Greek. Obviously, this would be a mixed marriage between a Jew and a Greek, which was obviously forbidden, actually, in the Word of God in the Old Testament. But no doubt, and we know from other writings as well, as, as, as the Jews were dispersed abroad, that certainly was taking place, and it took place here, obviously, in Timothy's family, as he's a product of this mixed marriage between a Gentile and a Jew. The wording of the text leads us to believe that his father, though, was already dead. It uses past tense from him, past tense for him if you look at it. So it's very likely his father's dead at this time. He had a strong influence for his Christian life. It was real. We know from 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15 that he was well trained in Scripture. From a child. Knowing the Holy Scriptures. We also see some of his history as we look back at what took place in the first century in this man. I want you to think about this. Here is Timothy. Let's just say he's 19. A likely age. He's 19 years old. Young man. A fairly recent convert. Paul the Apostle comes in. Who he's met one other time. At the first missionary journey. And Paul says, I want you to go with me. you got a really good testimony. We need somebody to help us. Come with us. Now, to put that in perspective, what had to go through Timothy's mind, think back to the first time he met 
Paul. Probably right before Paul led him to the Lord. Don't know, obviously doesn't give us the exact time frame of it, but nonetheless, Timothy is a very likely first-hand witness when Paul was stoned. He would have been there. He would have been there when he thought Paul was dead, maybe even dragging him out of the city. Maybe one of the men standing around him thinking they just killed him. And then, of course, the Lord raises him up. Now think about this as well. I doubt Eunice was present, but she certainly knew about it immediately. So his mother knew what happened to Paul while they were in his town. Remember, and the Bible makes it clear. I'm not making it because Paul says, I, I can't remember, first or second Timothy, now it's escaping me. Paul, Paul said, Timothy, you knew full well of my persecutions um, when I was there. He saw it. He knows what he's going to face. He knows if I go with this man, they'd like to kill him. Timothy knows if I go with him, likely my life, I will have to give my life for this same cause. So why did he go? Because he does. He doesn't hesitate. He goes with him. Well, one, it tells us this. There was a principle in place in his life that Timothy understood that life was all about God. That's what mattered. I don't know what his plans were prior to this day. I don't know what it was. I don't know what he's planning for his life. But at this age, I guarantee you, he's already learning to trade. He's going through a problem. All of a sudden, Paul comes through and says, you know what? You need to come with me. Done. Yeah, this is the guy that last time I was here, they stoned him. We're kind of hiding you right now while you're here. He knew life was all about God. He also saw such a tremendous example in Paul. Here is a man who was stoned, and he's back again. Paul didn't send a representative. Hey, I'm not exactly the most popular guy in Lister right now. Why don't I go ahead and send somebody else? He saw Paul's passion for the Lord, and that had an effect on him. He knows, this guy Paul, not only can he preach, but he really believes what he's preaching. He saw a man who knew the word of God and who lived it. So Timothy knew from the heritage he had, this man that he met, it was all of God and he understood life is all about God. We learn of Timothy's faithfulness. We know from 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 14 that before he, although it's not recorded here in Acts 16, it is recorded in 1 Timothy chapter 4, they did hold ordination service for Timothy before he left. We see in verse 2, he had a great testimony. Everybody knew that kid took it serious. There was no doubt. When it came to Timothy, they knew, no, yeah, that one's serious. Your testimony is so important. As a side note to this, of, of, of different issues that can sometimes come up in church politics, we have an important Bible principle here that I do want to put out there. The autonomy of the local church. You know how some churches have this hierarchy of a structure where there's a, 
there's the uh, mother church. One thing that's unique about Baptist is the autonomy of the local church. That's by design because we see it in Scripture. This is a perfect example. Paul does not go back to Bar- go, does not go back to Antioch or Jerusalem seeking permission for Timothy to go with him. Nobody sought for. We see it in First Timothy chapter four. His own local church. That's what he. That's what he looked for. Timothy. Given a quick over, he would end up pastoring in Ephesus. He would be the guy that Paul would send in the hot spots like Corinth. He'd be faithful to the end. And again, it's thought, we don't know for certain at all, but it's thought that, that it's likely he was present when Paul was martyred. So here, Paul travels through and God gives him this man, Timothy. What a perfect choice. Think about this. Here's a guy who's from the Roman Empire. The Lord knows where he's sending him right now. He's getting ready to go into Europe, and Paul doesn't even realize it yet. Here's a man who's from the Roman Empire. He has an in with the Gentiles, and he's going to have an in with the Jews, with both. It's just amazing the team that God is assembling right here as they get ready to head out. He's perfect for this journey. Again, God's selection is incredible. You can think back, I can think back in my own life, the different times, and listen, you notice when you get serious about serving God, prior to that, when, when you're away from God, your life isn't right, the Lord will still put people in your life, that's just trying to get you back, to try and get you to see what it's all about, to get you to respond. When you gently start seeking Him, He will put the right people in your life. Not only did the Lord bless with the right people that Paul would need, with Silas and Timothy, and by the way, there's another man that's going to come into play. I'm getting ahead of myself, but I think it's kind of neat. In the book of Acts, it is in Acts chapter 16. If I better not be wrong about that. But, years. but the writer, do you remember who wrote this book? Luke. The pronouns are getting ready to change. Because he's also going to pick up Luke. So it's just putting this team together here is just incredible. But not only do you have the right people, but we see with Paul, he had the right perspective. What I mean by that, it, let's look at something important that takes place in verse 3. Him would Paul have to go forth with him. So he asked Timothy to travel with him, but notice what he does here. And took and circumcised him because of the Jews, which were in those quarters, for they knew all that his father was a Greek. Let's, this shows how Paul truly had the right perspective. Here's Paul, he asked Timothy, I want you to come with me, but you need to be circumcised first. Timothy submitted to it. Paul appears to contradict what he just fought in Antioch and Jerusalem. Paul just got done fighting the idea, circumcision isn't necessary. Anyone? I mean, it started in Antioch, they go to Jerusalem to meet with all the apostles to decide, what is up with this? Do we got to follow the law? Are these things necessary anymore? Again, this was a time of transition. Uh, with with uh, 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 now the Lord using local churches, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the law in Christ, the fulfillment of all the ceremonial things that they did that was picturing the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're in this transition now. And here is Paul who just fought and said, listen, it's not necessary. And he goes to Timothy, the very first church. You need to get circumcised. But listen, Paul had the right perspective on this. This was not about salvation. 
the battle in Antioch and Jerusalem was Judaizers saying it was a necessity in order to be saved. In order for the Lord Jesus Christ to save you, they said it's not just faith. It's also circumcision. This is not about that whatsoever. And by the way, Paul was consistent with in Galatians chapter 2, we're not going to turn it for time's sake, but in the first five verses, uh, referring back to what took place in Acts 15, um, Paul did not have Titus circumcised. Two reasons for it, of course. One, Titus was a Gentile. And two, that was dealing with the, the, with the, uh, with the argument at hand of salvation. So what was this about? This is where we see Paul's right perspective. This is one of the examples which is throughout Paul's ministry where it was never, never about him. This was about what would be expedient for the ministry and right. Paul, think about this, Paul could have let his pride prevent Timothy from getting circumcised. Did he not just fight it? Does Paul realize he's going to take heat for this? He still does to this day. As I was reading commentaries on this, there's these commentators that tell Paul he was wrong. <laughs> I was like, what are you guys thinking? I can't wait till they get to heaven. I want to be there when he meets these guys. But to this day, there's people that question Paul's judgment in this thing. No, he just fought, he still should have. No, this wasn't about salvation. What Paul was wanting to be was effective for the cause of Christ. Timothy was a half-Jew and a half-Greek. Paul knew they're going to be in Jewish quarters as they traveled, right where they're at, as they would go on. Timothy, being a half-Jew and not circumcised, would present problems when they went into these places. The Jews would take that being, he abandoned the faith. That's going to put up some roadblocks pretty quick. So as to not cause those problems, Paul asked Timothy, you need to get circumcised. What Paul had was the right perspective. Paul did not avoid this uh, from a pride standpoint, knowing I just fought against this, I can't do this. Nope, he knew this was the right thing to do. He did what was right for the ministry and for the cause of Christ. Timothy submits to it. We see he was willing to suffer already. He was willing to do what it took for the cause of Christ. And remember, by the way, this move had nothing to do with sin. Let me explain that. Paul did not go to, because of how it's used to, I'm going to give an extreme example and, and, and trying to make a point with using a little bit of sarcasm with this. All right? What Paul did here, I'm going to, and we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 as well. I'm going to read that text here in a second. Paul did not go to Timothy and say this. You know what? We understand that in the pagan cultures, fornication is huge. It's really big. You're still pure. We can't have that. We need you to relate better. I need you to go get impure, and then we'll head out. It's never about sin. Never. Never. Yet we see people today justifying sinful actions in similar fashion in, in regards to trying to reach the culture. Paul talked about this. We'll go over in 1 Corinthians chapter 9.
verse number 19. For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. Unto the Jew I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jew. Jews, to them that are under the laws, under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without the laws, without the law, being uh, not without the law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without the law. To the weak became I weak, that I might gain the weak. I made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might part, uh, be a partaker thereof with you. Again, I have actually a whole sermon, a separate set I did on this several years ago. You can look it up online on, on our culture and, and what Paul was doing here because it gets misused and abused often. Many people like to use these verses to excuse carnal worldly behavior in the name of reaching the culture. Paul never did anything of the sort. Paul knew what people needed was free from the bondage of sin. Paul sought, always sought how to be effective in the culture without ever compromising anything that was right. Which is exactly what you do. He, he was not about to go out there and purposely be offensive in the culture. It's going to hinder him in the gospel. He wasn't going to do it. And he shouldn't. He had the right perspective. And there are times that we do need to do the things that are expedient even if not required. Remember, what he's asking Timothy to do is something more, more towards, uh, in a Jewish mind, towards righteousness. And then lastly, we see the need for right production of what took place here. Let's go back to our text in Acts 16. It says this in verses 4 and 5. And as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees for to keep that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. And so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. So we see Paul, God's putting the right people around Paul. Paul has the right perspective for this to be uh, successful. And then we actually see the success. We see right production taking place. We see results. We see growth. So Paul comes in, of course he has, the, if you remember what he's referring to from Acts 15, the letters from Jerusalem, this is letting those Gentiles know because the Judaizers had already come into Galatia. So Paul is letting them know, listen, this has been settled, it is just simply repentance and faith in Christ alone, that's all that's needed for salvation. You don't have to be circumcised, you don't have to follow the law, none of that's true. Those were false teachers that came in. Salvation is by faith, through grace, that's it. That's what those letters dealt with, as well as living by love. Not eating the meat off the idols. Again, we dealt with that. Go back to the message in Acts 15. Again, that, that's, that's not using your liberty to cause others to stumble. So he said, listen, don't do that. You're going to cause, you're going to cause others to stumble. And of course, obviously bringing up fornication, which already did, because it was so prevalent in pagan religion. That, that's going to have to be dealt with. They certainly don't want their converts all of a sudden thinking somehow fornication is, is all right. I mean, it was such a norm in every aspect of the culture. <clears throat> but here, with what's taking place, as Paul goes back into Iconium and Derby and Lystra, and, and it, you know, we're seeing the growth of the Christians taking place. The word established here means it, it's... it's it's obviously a strong word. It means made strong. Paul is preaching and he's teaching. These churches are growing. They're getting strengthened. 
Not only that, it says they increased in numbers as well. We shouldn't be afraid of growth. Not at all. There's always a problem when a church becomes about numbers. And we've certainly seen that at independent fundamental Baptist churches that are obsessed with it. That's wrong. That's pride-based. It's sinful and it's wrong. But boy, we shouldn't be afraid of growth. We want to reach others. It's not about our four and no more. It's about reaching out and seeing people come to know Christ. I mean, if you're the lost one, I mean, listen, you have truth right now. You would want somebody to reach you. It says they increased. And that was a good thing. That's why the Bible is putting it there. It's a good thing. And so as Paul goes, and we're going to see this really throughout, how the, Paul, how the Lord's going to use things he's putting in place now, even what's going to be taking place in the churches we're getting ready to run into. Is he, he's going to head into Philippi, Thessalonica, going down into Athens, into Corinth. It's going to be incredible what takes place. And for it to be successful, what you had was, you had Paul, a man who was, without a doubt, completely just yielded to the Lord. A man who really believed it was all about God. We saw that from his conversion at the very moment when he realized that the Jesus, who he was persecuting, was in fact the Messiah. He doesn't hesitate when he converts. This is the man who authorized the stoning of Stephen. By the way, I want you to think about this. When he was, I didn't bring this up when I went through it, but I was, I was thinking about this this week as I was going over this message. A thought hit me. When he was being stoned there in Lystra, Durban, Lystra, when he got stoned there, remember they were worshiping, they, you know, he healed the man there. And they, oh my, Saturn and Jupiter, Paul and Barnabas, the gods have come down to us. And Paul's like, we're not gods. What are you doing? We're men like you. And you can see how fickle the world is. One minute they're worshiping, and then the same day, now we're ready to kill him and they stone him. But I want you to think about this. When Paul, when he's on his very first missionary journey, and the stones start coming. You know what I think had to go through his mind? Stephen. I mean, you can almost see him submitting to it. I was where they were. Man, had Christ not saved me, I'd be throwing those stones right now. But God changed him. To the point he becomes... I mean... It's likely because of how God used him. It's all of the Lord. Don't get me wrong. But how the Lord used him, it's likely our, any solid church exists today. He's the one going to bring the gospel into Europe. He's the one going to make sure these churches are established. He's the one that's going to go back through Galatia again. Because you know what happens in Galatia, those churches, that he's, he, he's, you can have these waves. False teachers come right back into those churches. Iconium, Derby, and Lystra. Antioch of Pisidia. They come right back in. And they start to believe you've got to follow the law to be saved. This is still the first century. Where all of a sudden, they start teaching and preaching a false gospel. This is in the first century. We're 2,000 years removed. Do you think the devil's still perfecting that art right now? That there's still churches preaching a false gospel in the name of Christ? Absolutely. This is why everything that just goes on in the name of Christ, you just don't accept. Paul tells them in that letter to Galatians that we have, he's strong. 
gave him questions. He goes, I mean, you can see his frustration. What are you doing? How can, and, and, and we'll go through Galatians. It's a strong book on salvation. I mean, he is clear. You've left the gospel. Don't add anything to it. It is Christ alone. Think of how few churches actually believe that today. That it's Christ alone. They all like to claim his death, burial, and resurrection, but that's not all there is to it. Once you have that in place, you have now left the gospel. You've left it. You see, because one day, you're going to stand before Almighty God and he's going to judge you. This is what's going to happen. I'm closing with this. You're going to die. The Bible says this, and it is appointed unto men once to die. But after this, the judgment. God will judge you. Think of what a horrible day that's going to be. Think about that. Think of the fear that should put when Almighty God judges you. You have people today who are master manipulators. Or they can go before a judge and hire just one of the finest attorneys and just twist things around. Or they can be just deceptive and lie. No, I wasn't there. I mean, I don't know this one guy that's, I know there's that huge trial line right now. I don't know if the guy did it or not, but I know that's, I, I wasn't there. Then all of a sudden he was there. Well, I wasn't there at that moment. You know, when you go before God and he judges you, you'll say nothing. You see, because God is all-knowing. There's nothing you can say. And when he judges you, it's going to be based on his law. You know those Ten Commandments where you've broken all of them? Where it says, thou shalt not bear false witness. The truth is, you've lied and you're a liar, just like I am. Thou shalt not covet. The truth is, you've coveted many times. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. You're a blasphemer. We can go through them all. You're an idolater. You're an adulterer. And that almighty God's going to judge you. Think about it. You're guilty. He's not going to say to you, you know what, you and I have our own thing worked out. You know how many times I've heard that when I've witnessed to people? I mean, literally, probably well over a hundred times I've heard that. You don't have your own thing worked out between you and God. You are deceived and you're deceiving your own heart. You're going to be judged of a holy and righteous God. And you're guilty. Something has to take place when you're there at judgment where you look perfect. That's God's requirement. It's not that, well, my good works outweigh my bad. I'm a pretty good person. I'm not nearly as bad as others. That's not what God's going to do. God's not going to say, you know what? You are like the top guy in your neighborhood. Come on in. It's not going to happen. God knows how wicked you are, even if nobody else does. That's the truth. He's going to judge you. You're guilty. The only way out of it, the only way out of it is if you look perfect. You know what God said? He, he made it even more clear in the book of James. He said, if you just offended in one point in the law, which we've all done much more than that, but if you just offended in one, you're guilty of all of it. It's, it's like a windshield. The windshield starts to crack. You're not replacing just the crack, are you? You're replacing the entire windshield. The law is like that. Once you broke it, you broke it.
So how do we look perfect? Well, this is where, this is where God is just so incredible. He really, truly made a way because he loves you. Made a way for you to look perfect. Know what he did? He became a man 2,000 years ago. So he sent his son. We have the triune God. There's one God that exists in three. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We see that, by the way, from Genesis chapter 1 with the very first name of God given in Hebrew, Elohim. Elohim is a unique grammatical structure in the Hebrew language. It's a uniplural noun. We see it right in, and we see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit right in the first couple of verses. But he, the Son comes, God Almighty Himself, and puts on flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. So now, get this, understand this, follow me here, don't lose me here. He's on the earth as a man. He lives on this earth 30 some years as a man. One, how humbling, just incredible that the Creator would do this. This is the Creator of the entire universe. All-powerful, all-knowing, becoming a man, living on this earth as a man. This is why it's so important that He did that. Listen to me. He is the only man who has ever lived. The only person who never broke the law. He lived the perfect life life. So get this. So he could stand before the Father at judgment, and the Father could say what? You're innocent. You're innocent. He's the only one who's ever lived on this earth that that statement could be said. But this is where it gets so much better. You see, he lived that perfect life for you. When he went to the cross, last Sunday night, Daniel Sobek preached a message on the propitiation, how Christ was our propitiation, our appeasement. And, and, and the key definitions, brother, is where you get that in the Word of God. The satisfying of the wrath or the judgment of the Almighty God. So he, and he went to the cross. You know what he was doing? Listen to this verse. Mm, incredible. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Speaking what happened on the cross. So when the Lord Jesus Christ was on the cross, get this, God the Father was placing upon him your sin. As if he was the transgressor, as if he was the sinner. As if he is the one that did all the filth and those thoughts and those wretched things. And he places upon him your sin. You want to know why? So he could be that propitiation. Because that's what the cross was. God the Father then judged him in your place. Say why? I, I don't get why this had to take place. Listen, listen. God is just. It's who he is. That's not changing. It's not just you saying, Lord, forgive me. That doesn't satisfy justice. What Christ did on the cross, his life satisfied holiness, which is God's number one attribute in the word of God. It is spoken of more than any other. And he lived that holy, separated life as a man. On the cross, he then satisfied justice. When he cried out, it is finished, it satisfied him. In other words, what God said is, my perfect son, 
I'm going to judge him in your place as if he committed your transgressions. And God said, I'll accept that to satisfy justice so that you don't have to go to hell. Christ dies, but hell doesn't hold him. He's God. After three days and three nights, he defeats death and rises again from the dead. If God judges you at that judgment day and he sends you to hell, you're not God. You're not coming out. You're there forever. Well, I don't believe in hell. Jump off a mountain and claim you don't believe in gravity. It doesn't matter. You're still dropping like a little rock, maybe even a big rock. At the same time he takes your sin, that verse taught us that he gives you his righteousness, his perfect life. So think about that. If that takes place when you stand before God, if what Christ did on the cross where he took your sin and he's given you his perfect life and you stand before him, know what it looks like? You're perfect. He sees his son's righteousness in your life just like he saw your sin in his son on the cross. Christ died for all. But few there be that find it. That's the truth. The majority of people, according to the word of God, will not, which is so sad, thinking of all that God did to save them, will reject that truth. So, how is it that Christ's death becomes effectual for me? Where, and what I mean by that is, he saves you. Where you do get his perfect life. And your sins, justice was satisfied on the cross. It's been the same way throughout all of time. Repentance and faith. It is you realizing, I'm in a whole lot of trouble. God judges me. I will go to hell. But you believe that Christ did die for you and defeated that death and rose again. And if you'll repent and place your faith only in Christ, He'll save you right there. Ask that thief on the cross. When the Lord looked at him, when the only thing he did was just what I'm talking about, only thing he did was place his faith in Christ. Lord, now come into thy kingdom, remember me. He already acknowledged how wretched he was. He was afraid of judgment. He never asked him down from the cross. You put those things together, note the Lord said to him, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Because he placed his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Plus nothing else. Don't mix this with anything. So the question is, does that happen in your life? With heads bowed and eyes closed. So let me start with where I just left off. Is there 